Amen. Amen. Thank you. 52 weeks ago to this day, we received a phone call that one of our own was on her way to church and ended up suffering a massive heart attack. And Charlotte Moore, you stand as a picture one year later of, of healing. We thank the Lord. And uh, we are so grateful. So, uh, um, hey, just to bring you up to speed on a few things, again, to reiterate what what uh, Shale said. Thank you all for the home meetings that went on. A lot uh, about the building, what's happening with the building, and our desire to see this thing paid off quicker than we can even think of in our minds. If you were not able to make any of those meetings last week, we were going to schedule a few um, here at the church. And it's just walking you through the blueprints, the, the grounds. And if you'd like to do that, would you see me? Because we've had about a half dozen people ask if we could have another one. And we, we could do it during the day. We could do it at night. Um, love to do that. So, you know, in the, in, the, in the lobby, there's a lot of sign-up sheets. We have clipboards everywhere. And I know it seems old-fashioned, right? You could go online and sign up for things. But um, this is a... It's an old-fashioned way of collecting information for very important projects. We have a lot of different projects that are coming up. So uh, you heard the, the homeless ministry uh, where Chip Purcell and a group faithfully go every month. Well, we have another opportunity, and that is right in back of us is the food bank Tampa Bay Harvest, which feeds 1,800 families a month. They are currently open Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, we have officially financially started partnering with them, but I asked the pastor next door, I was like, what can we do to help? He said, what you could do if your church could possibly take on one Saturday a month to oversee our food bank, that way they can open from 9 a.m. to noon one Saturday a month. So it would probably, it'd be either the second week or the fourth week of the month. They would need minimum of five Ideally, 10 volunteers. And if you, so that means if you have three hours a month, one Saturday a month, um, to come and help out, you can help literally hand them the bag of meat, the bag of cheese. You can help be their personal shopper, walk through and help them put things in a basket. Or just be outside and help them load the car and pray with them if you'd like to be. You name it. I mean, if you have an evangelistic cart and you just want to share Jesus with people out there, you could do anything. You want to sweep, you catch my drift, right? If you would sign up in the lobby to help the food bank, we're feeding 1,800 families a month. And so I'm pretty confident that we're going to get not only one, but probably two Saturdays this church could fill. I mean, I just do, because it's something I think um, I get excited about not only helping others, helping those who are in need, but um, also get to rub shoulders with you guys. You know, when you worship like this and you're in back of each other, in front of each other, you really not, you don't get a, an opportunity to come around and talk to each other and, and, and have dialogue. When you're serving next to each other and you're boxing up food and that kind of thing, it's a lot of fun. And it's, it's amazing food what's given. They, their, their donations come in from Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, and Fresh Market. And so it's amazing. I mean, like I went over there and helped out one day and I'm like handing over buffalo meat and and like all this organic cheese and i'm thinking this is this is looking really good you know and uh and but it's just really awesome to be able to see these organizations give that kind of food that we're able to give to people it's just really really cool um with that being said we're glad you're here one more time to, to reiterate what, what uh, Shale mentioned, which is if you're a first-time visitor, we don't beat you over the head. We just want to add you to our mail, email list. If you'd please fill out that card, because we do not pass an offering plate in here. We have boxes in the back. If you'd remember to do that, because we, we don't aggressively pursue that, but we want to know who you are, you know? And uh, anyway, I'm going to go ahead and open up in, um, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we are continuing a walkthrough in Scripture. Uh, we've been in First and Second Samuel since the beginning of the year. Uh, we will be finishing it this fall, and sometimes we're able to cover two or three chapters on a Sunday. In this particular case, we're going to be dedicating one whole chapter for today, and uh, you may have grown up in church, and you've heard all about David and Bathsheba. You may be walking in here saying, I've never heard this story before. Either way, I think we're going to walk out learning something. So let me pray uh, for me, okay? And then we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, please speak through me. Lord, I just pray that you just make it clear I not be a distraction in any way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And, uh, you know, 
By the way, we got the air conditioning fixed. So those of you fanning yourselves, thank God it's because of the number of people that are coming in here. So we were like, this is a good problem to have. And, um, and so we're... The, the, the people at the first service are like wearing sweaters and jackets, but I'm like, there's a reason for this. So uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is something that is a, a continuation of David's life. David is a, he's in the golden reign of his ministry, the golden reign of his life. This man has been through so much and he's about to teach us a lesson of what it means for us, you and I, to deal with something called temptation, deal with something called sin. And now a lot of us start to think, why would God allow us to be tempted so much? Um, I think it was a Spurgeon who once said, there's nothing I cannot be tempted with except for temptation. And uh, the, the, the reality is you and I all have something in common whether we are believers in Jesus or not, we walk in here with the temptation, the temptation to do something that is not right. And for those of us believers, not godly. And so I look at this and I keep thinking, at, at some degree, look at how far temptations have taken people down a path. I love history. I love studying history. I love reading about history. And I know I, when I look at periods of history, I always wonder about the what ifs. Well, what could have happened if this would have happened? What would have happened had we known about this attack or this, this um, move by an enemy that would change the course of history for years to come? But I also wonder how. I, I look at uh, Germany. I remember going to Germany when, with my parents, 16 years old. I'm looking around at, at the people in Germany. And even at 16, I love to read about history. I love to watch movies about you know World War II. And I remember being over there thinking, I don't get it. These are really friendly people. They're really nice people. As a matter of fact, I remember meeting some World War II veterans that were German. And they were friendly, kind, sweet people. And I'm thinking, where did these people go wrong? How did it go wrong? Where did these people become uh, a people that, that, uh, that occupied innocent countries? They, uh, we, we estimate, what, eight, six to eight million Jews killed in, in concentration camps. And so as I began getting older, I started looking into this. Like, where did the, how could anybody be a guard ushering people into a gas chamber in a concentration camp? And so one particular book that stood out, a Harvard professor named Goldhagen wrote a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And so what he would do is he would talk to surviving concentration, concentration camp guards and bring them in and interview them. He found something out. They were uh, they were everything from teachers to florists to street sweepers to accountants. These were ordinary people who were given a position of brutality. And he would ask them, how could you usher people into forced labor? How could you move them along into gas chambers? How could this happen? Now, of course, any student in history recognized you had no choice to do it. If you were conscripted into service, you had to do it. If you and I lived in Germany outside of the strength of a Bonhoeffer or something, we would probably have adhered to the rule because our families would have been affected. We don't know. But we was asked, how could you do this? And the answer had a common denominator. Most of these former guards would say, well... They weren't human. They were an object. By the time they got to us, they were emaciated, their heads were shaved. They didn't look human. They were an object. And so when you think of that, and you think of, of why God speaks to us in so many ways about temptation, oftentimes it's to prevent us from ever making a human being an object. For example, I'm going to show you a verse found in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. This uh, Jesus is saying here, on the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, there's so many aspects to this. First of all, every man in here is probably thinking, well, I'm toast. You know, we're all done. And you're thinking, what can I, where can I go from this? But the reality is what Jesus is saying is, it is not me calling you an adulterer. I'm not calling you a sinful, wayward person in this verse so much as I am indicating and telling you that I never want anyone to ever 
become an object. It's for the protection. I think what's important to recognize in this sermon is Jesus is coming onto the scene and he's not saying, hey everybody, I want to throw another, I'm going to give you an 11th commandment. I'm going to give you a weight you can't carry. I'm not going to, he's, he's not coming here saying, I'm going to give you another law. He is walking into the scene in one of his first speeches and first acts of ministry says this, you have followed the law and it doesn't work for you and you know that. You know you need redemption. You know you need power. You know you need strength. I am coming to tell you, go back to one more verse if you could, Ariel, back to 27. You've heard that it was said you cannot commit adultery. You know that commandment. I am here to tell you that now I am here. You are not alone anymore. I know the condition of your heart. I'm saying, Jesus is saying this. This is amazing. Grasp this if you grasp nothing else. I know that you are an adulterer in your heart. I know you. And I've come to show you that I care and that I love you. That's a powerful thought. I mean, we could end right there. That's an amazing thought. But you're stuck with me in this chapter. So chapter 11, <laughs> verse 1. Let's uh, start breaking it apart here. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So we'll stop right here and look at this verse and think, well, the writer of the scripture is very clear. He is not um, making any um, light point when he says, in the spring of the year, when kings go to battle. This is when David, by the way, should have been at battle. David stayed in the capital during a major battle offensive against the Ammonites. He didn't fight in the winter. You're probably thinking, why? Was there snow and all that kind of thing? It's not so much. You just couldn't feed the animals. You had a massive train of you know, camels and donkeys and horses, and you had to feed those things. So you waited till spring, and, and then the crops would, early crops would come in to feed the men. So David sent Joab, who's Joab. Joab is his commander of the armed forces. Joab, his... Um, uh, is, is, a, is a well-esteemed commander in David's eyes. So much, remember Joab, if you were here a few weeks ago, killed someone and David was upset with Joab, put him at his funeral as a matter of fact, but didn't do anything to Joab because there was a lot of respect for him. David sends Joab, servants with him and all Israel. But David remained at Jerusalem. David is about to fall into major temptation and a major sin. He does so under a principle that I learned from a guy named Mike Kahn. Some of you know Mike Kahn, a minister in Tampa. And he taught me a principle, and here it is. Uh, we are most tempted to fall and fail in sin when we live under these conditions. It's called the HALT principle. When you are hurting, angry, lonely, or tired. Now, Shale called me this morning. He goes, what was that thing? Hungry, Heard he, he's like, yes, Shale, I'm supposed whenever I really want a whopper, I, you know, I fall myself into temptation. But hurting, angry, lonely, or tired is when you are prone to fall into a place of temptation. Because you want to take it out on something. You're angry at someone. You're, you're, angry, at a, at, you're angry at a person. You're angry at a situation. You're hurt. I mean, forget this. I'm going to do anything I want to do. And David... Is, a place, is at a place where he has everything he wants. He's now the king over Israel. This man has been pushed into a cave. He's been told he's going to be executed. He's been told he'll never be the king of Israel by everybody except for a prophet and 600 loyal men and their wives who follow him along. David is now the king over Israel. Everything he can lay his eyes upon. This mighty warrior. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons he was told he couldn't build the temple because he, he was of the bloody sword. I mean, he was like, you know, you know, you bring too much impurity to this, to this endeavor. And so this warrior is now sitting in his palace. What happens? Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. 
And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and sent it and told to David these incredible words that rocked his soul. I am pregnant. David walks out into his balcony. The city is empty of most of its men. He looks out. On the precipice below is this woman who's bathing. Um, and you get, you get to the areas of, um, of cleansing herself and those kind of things. As there's a lot of ceremony, ceremonial sexual things that you can derive from um, Leviticus and what they're talking about. And, and he, David looked and he said, uh, who's that? One of the council members said that's the, very clearly that is the wife of Uriah. And he gives, uh, he gives Uriah's full title. In case you forgot who he is, David, my, the king, you would know who that is. That's his wife. David now has seven or eight wives, by the way. Six, seven, eight wives at this point. Remember, he, is a, as a godly king of Israel, is not allowed to have that many wives. It's been told in scripture, but he, he has them. He says, um, send her to me. And she arrives at the palace, he sleeps with her, and then she's pregnant. He gets this word and immediately starts a chain and course of events that you see over and over again when we fall into temptation. If I meet with someone regarding their sin, you can always tell the difference in someone who's really affected and crying because of their mistake and what they've done and how far they've fallen or you can sense someone is crying because of their circumstances. You guys know what I mean by that? I mean, they're just, they're sorry that I got fired. I'm sorry my wife's angry at me. And they're bawling for that. But there's no core that I'm talking to in a person that's repentful. And so here, you have David at a place of this woman's pregnant. Her husband's in battle. It's going to be discovered that I slept with her. And so... He starts a chain of action to bring her husband home. He's going to bring her husband home. Come home from the battle. He's known Uriah, by the way. Uriah was with him in the cave when he was being pursued by the king of Israel. Uriah was with him when he lived in Philistine territory. Uriah was with him when they were battling against the Amalekites. Uriah has been there all this time. He was one of what they called the loyal men. And so this Uriah is given over in, in, uh, in verse 6 to come home. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab. Sime Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When David came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Now, this is maybe nothing unusual. Whenever you see, by the way, people giving over like Uriah, the son of that, that's a formal introduction. You know, that would just be who your form is. Uriah the Hittite, because there are a lot of Uriahs, it would be a Uriah of Land Lakes or a Uriah of Tenonis Acid. That's just kind of who, yeah, go, fetch that one and come, come over. Joab thought nothing of it, so Uriah arrives in the palace. He's got to be wondering, what's, what's this about? Uh, how's the war going? How's the campaign? I mean, just it's not too far away. And a lot of people reason and wonder, why did David stay to begin with? Don't know. But you can conjecture, he was close enough to battle, he didn't have to go. Maybe he's getting to the place of like, I don't have to lead anyway. And it, I mean, I don't have to be there. I've conquered enough lands. I get, my generals are capable. For whatever reason, he's still in the city. Uriah arrives. David's asking him his questions. How are things? How are the men? How's the morale? How's the ground? Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house. Wash your feet. And Uriah went out from the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Well, this is going to be easy. The man probably misses his wife. He's been in battle. He's been welcomed home. Go home. Be with... He says, when he says go down and wash your feet, there's, there's, it's not just simply washing your feet. There's a connotation of that about cleansing yourself go to your, before you go to your woman. Go... What does Uriah do? Verse 9. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not 
go to his house. Think about this now. The faithfulness and obedience of Uriah versus the wanton disregard for life that David had. Uriah looks at this and says, I've been given an opportunity to go sleep with my wife, be with my home, sleep in my bed. He goes to the gate and sleeps with the servants outside of the gate at the door of the king's house. That's what a leader does. A leader is going to eat what his soldiers eat. A leader is going to do what their, what their followers do. There's a story I read. Um, it was a remarkable, it was something small, but it was something that stood out to me as a kid. It was General Lee in the middle of camping out in a, outside the Battle of Chancellorsville. Had a chicken. And one day he, would, he enjoyed eggs for breakfast. And his servant would make him eggs and he'd eat eggs. And then one day the chicken wasn't there. It's because Lee generally had heard from his other soldiers that they had, had not had meat in their soup in a long time and or not had eggs. And so General Lee thought, I'm not going to have something my men can't, and ordered the cook to cut it up and put it into the stock. A leader is one who will not have excess of what the followers cannot. Meanwhile, David, in springtime when kings go to war, sleep in his palace. Meanwhile, when his men are at war, David is sleeping with one of his officers' wives. In this Uriah He's been given full access to go to his wife, go to his home, and Uriah can't do it. Verse 10, when they told David, um, your majesty, Uriah did not go down to that to his house. David said to Uriah, Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah says to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This is a powerful verse that Uriah is not only saying, I'm a loyal man, my men are out in the field. He brings up a lot of things. He says, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. If you're a new believer, not a believer, you may be thinking, what does that mean? For those, just to dig a little deeper on that, when he says the ark is in Israel, it could not, it may be the ark they've carried in the battle, but more than likely it's the ephod, what the priest would wear that's in the ark. They would refer to that the ark. That's out there with the soldiers. But he says this, and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. Basically, they're not tents. They're kind of temporary, um, you know, wooden poles. They're like tents, but they're a little bit more structured. When he says Israel and Judah, remember, David was king over Judah before he was king over Israel. Judah and Israel had come together. He says, your majesty, the ark is out there in battle. Judah and Israel have come together. They're fighting together. And then my lord, my Joab, my lord, my master, my commander is in the field. And my men in the I can't sleep in my wife. And then he makes this statement down at the end. This is a double dog Darius statement. This is not, as long as I live, a statement in the Jewish culture which says this, as you live, basically, I swear on your life, which has been more than saying I swear on my life, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, David has a plan up his sleeve. Right, watch you here it is. David says to Uriah, I tell you, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. Don't leave that out. I mean he got him intentionally drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his own house. He gets Uriah to a place of inebriation, totally drunk. David is no doubt ordering the strongest of drink, and he's thinking, this is it. This is when he's going to go down to his wife. I've got him. Everything's fixed. Uriah, even in a drunken, obliterated state, falls down outside his place and simply says, I can't go in there. You talk about strength of a man who's been given permission by the king, his authority. Go sleep with your wife. Go in there and eat. Go in there and sleep in that bed. And he doesn't do it. What a remarkable picture of leadership. And sometimes we sit there and think, what would I have done? 
I mean, you've been given full reign, full authority. No one would have questioned you. Which goes back to the idea of temptation and where it comes from. Every one of us in here are delved into temptation and every younger person in here believes a lie and you need to be careful. You ready for this? You're thinking, when I get older, it'll just go away. Ed Pappy, do you think there's any truth to that? He's shaking his head, there ain't no chance. Let me tell you, it's there. It's as alive at any age as it will ever be. And in case you're thinking, well, I walked in here somewhat in a good mood. (laughs) And I'm leaving here realizing I'm going to crawl out on my belly. Understand something, there's great news at the end. But here is this man, Uriah, a greater leader than his his own king. But now what is David going to do? David is going to go to a low and an extreme that is going to be harsh. The amount of deceit that's going to come out, the amount of planning and evilness that's going to come forth is beyond, I think, what any normal person would do. Verse 14, here we go. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, in case you're seeing this for the first time, you're thinking, this is pretty cruel. It is. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Basically, the king issues a, a death sentence, seals it with his king's uh, in, signet, seals it, gives this death sentence to the very man who's going to be executed. He gives Uriah this note and says, Give this to Joab. Can you imagine Joab's face when Uriah hands him this note and said there's there's communications from the king? What could he be saying? I mean, you've been with him for almost a week. What's going on? He opens it up and he reads, set Uriah to the hardest part of the fighting and make sure that he may be struck down and killed. Verse 16. And as Joab was besieging a city... He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite died also. So there's a, ba- there's a book called Battles of the Bible by Herzog, and he describes where he would have been sent to battle. Um, this particular case... Um, where they were fighting, there was a fortress. The fortress would be made up of like, these angled walls. So it would not be a circle. You know, it would be like, angled walls, continually angled. And that was done so there would be what they call crossfire. Those of you in the military or do fighting, you would know that it's much more effective than to shoot arrows this way. You would shoot them this way, and you would be hitting men on two fronts. And so they would have sent in a small contingent of men, in this particular case, uh, we, we know from some historical archives uh, in the Septuagint, which is not canonized scripture, you know, a little detail there, that there were 18 men killed plus Uriah. So we often think, when we think of this chapter, oh, Uriah was killed. There were 18 innocent men also who died because of this cover-up. These men would have gone out and the, the archers would have been very um, adept at knowing I'm going to fire at 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet. They would have had markers in their mind knowing this is where they fire. So the deluge of arrows going into these men as the, as the, as the army pushed forward and the, the shields, the Romans later did a magnificent version of this uh, and how they would form almost like a human snake, uh, just like, like an armadillo and its layered levels of its own protective skin and armor. These men would have gone out um, and basically been stuck and realized all they had were their spears and there was no one to come out and fight and the archers continually rained down the arrows to eventually the leather hides. Remember, they didn't use steel or iron. That was something the Philistines did. They would, they would have had leather hides and the hides would have broken down from the arrows and these poor men who, instead of retreating and running, along with their commander Uriah, took the weight of the arrows and they all died at that place. So verse 18, then Joab sent and told David about the news and the fighting. The next few verses, hold tight, 
buckle up, they're a little confusing, but I've got an opinion on them. He, um, see the instructions that Joab's going to send to his... He's, Joab's going to send a messenger. All right, here is the messenger. He's going to say, he says, he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling David about the news, about the fighting, and tell them to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? And then he quotes something from the Old Testament, a story. Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jebusheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Can I just break this up a little bit? When it says here... Um, He's sending this messenger. The messenger gets the king and he says, when he gets there, if he starts saying, why did you go so close to the wall? Every military commander knows you don't go that close to the wall. You're going to get annihilated. And then if he even brings up the fact that in history we've known one of our great fathers was killed by, by a woman dropping a millstone off of a wall and killing this guy. Why would you possibly send in men against archers? If he does that, he goes into a rampage, here's what I want you to, this is what I want you to say. At the very end, if the king goes nuts on you, he tells the messenger, say this, then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. There, I think, this is Jakeology here, okay, this is like not, okay, I think there's two things, two reasons he's doing this. Number one, he's letting him know other men died and yes, this is what had to happen for Uriah to die. Because remember, the command came in and said, Uriah's get, getting killed, not these other men. Secondly, I think it could have been he was covering himself almost like a blackmail. Like, oh, you want to call my move ridiculous? Well, by the way, Uriah's dead and I still have that paper. So it could be either one, I think. But that's just a little subplot going on in our series. Verse 22 so the messenger went, came and told David all that Joab has sent to him to tell. What's, the, what's David's response going to be? The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us. They came down against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Wow, what's David going to, how's he going to react? Verse 25. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Oh, and these, oh, these awful words. And encourage him. The messenger goes back and says, oh, You know, Joab, his, what was his response? What was his response about Uriah, Uriah dying and his other man? Because as the sword falls on one man, it falls on another. Be encouraged, you're doing a great job. I mean, you talk about the ramifications of sin. I think what we, if we're not careful, we can become very, very chauvinistic about this message. Every preacher has ever preached it. Oh man, David, hard after, hard after God. God's one of his own. He fails, he falls, he's restored, he's brought back up. But has anyone ever thought of Bathsheba? I mean, I'm sure you have. There's been great books written on it. Someone at the early service came and told me there's a phenomenal book written on it. I can't wait to read it. But this woman, whether she willingly walked in there or she didn't, was raped. This woman, whether she willingly wanted to go or... She was enticed by a man in his authority and was taken advantage of. And what you see here is a woman who was hurting and a woman who's going to pay for the rest of her life. Now, David, what about him? What about the ramifications here? There are going to be ramifications. We're going to see next week what's going to happen. But don't think for a second that there are not consequences to sin. If we walk through any scripture, we talk on it. We've joked with you for two years. We haven't talked about money because we haven't hit scripture. So, you know, if you ever walk in and think, I wonder if the preacher's going to talk about money. Well, if it's in there, we'll talk about it. If it's about adultery, we'll talk about it. If it's about, this is about sin. This is about us, you and I, that do bad things. You know, 
I all the time as a college ministry used to watch young men and women get up and grab a microphone and talk under these glaring lights about God's redeemed their life and restored them in their back. But in the back of my mind, I would always wonder who never came out of that scenario. Who were people that were stuck and are still stuck in that place? There are consequences. If you're an alcoholic and you're just, man, you know, you're, you're, you're raging with a disease of alcoholism and you're, you're restored. Man, I've conquered it. God's great. You become a pastor. But guess what? You still have liver damage. If you're a person who continually falls into a sin where, but you know what? You understand God's forgiving. God's graceful. God's just. Guess what happens? you begin to see that there are consequences. And there are consequences. Verse 26, And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, and she lamented over her husband. She mourned over her husband. Was that night pleasurable? Do you think it was pleasurable for her? I'm not sure. Was if, I would imagine if she had probably cried out that it was against her will, she would have been executed. So more than likely, it wasn't. Because of the extremes he went to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. But in any case, do you think it was, do you think it was pleasant for David? That sin? I guarantee it was. What it was like to lure this woman into his chambers and go into his own chambers in his own bedroom, take her to a place where only he would lie, a place under these sheets in that moment I'm sure, was pure ecstasy. It was a moment where everything was right. But in the morning, it was over. There's a, um, a, a gentleman who's wrote, written a lot of books. His name's Randy Alcorn. He has written a book on temptation. He said, anytime I walk through temptation, temptation takes me to the what ifs. What if I could have this? What if I could be like this? What if I could do this at this moment? But then I begin to rehearse. I rehearse everything from the moment it's over. I rehearse the damage I'll cause to my wife who will never look at me and, uh, the same for years to come. I look at the damage I'll cause my church. I look at the damage and disrespect I'll have from my friends that I'll lose. I'll look at my life-altering decisions that come from that moment, he says, and as best I do, I rehearse in my mind what's going on. Here you see what a wicked web we weave when we first attempt to deceive. And it's so true. And this deception has taken a channel that David never thought he would take. I think about a verse that comes to my mind. And... Um, it's a verse in James. It's James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It reads this. But each person is tempted. That means you and I. Every one of us. It means we put our name in this place. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And you look at those verses and you think, what could I possibly do? And here's what I don't want you... This is what the enemy can do in your mind. He can make you feel like a complete fraud and failure if you're not careful. You can sit in here and think, I know what I've done on the internet. I know what I've done in the areas of pornography. I know what I've done in the area of, of lust, of temptation. I know in the area I've done in deceit. I know what I've done in the area of the sin of omission of not doing certain things. I am a fraud, I'm a fake, and, I, and here I am. I just got done singing songs about the greatness of God. Tell me, what is it and why is it I can't overcome this? When is the strength going to happen? If I'm not going to age out of it, if it's not going to fall off me like acne or something as I get older, where and how and will will I ever get over temptation? You won't. You can't. There's no formula... That when you cheat on your wife, this is what happened. Well, okay, or you cheat on your husband. This is, okay, here's what probably happened. You probably felt neglected at home and you felt words of affirmation at work or you felt this. No, it's different with everyone. Sin carries no direct formula other than this. You and I, in our nature, sin. It's who we are. That's what we do. 
But there's a nature of someone else. And that nature is of God. And God is the one who will finish a story. Speaking of finishing a story, just look at the, the last verse. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But that thing David had done displeased the Lord. That thing David had done displeased the Lord. Keep in mind, the Lord has never been bashful if a king displeased him. What did they do? I end your reign. What did you do? I end your power. I'll end your life. God had no problem ever dispensing justice. But why is it God is doing this with David? And you'll learn next week what God's going to do with David. But in this particular case, you and I, talking about 2019, what about us? And what you did last night or last week or last month, and what you did that you know, that you know, that you know you displeased the Lord, what do you do? C.S. Lewis, had it not been C.S. Lewis, I, I would think we'd probably discredit it. He wrote in one of his books, not sure which one, he said, I wake up in the morning and thank God for my sin. What does that mean? But then he finishes his thought and he says this, that it so afforded me the opportunity to be pursued by Jesus and to be told that I was loved. That if it weren't for the sin in my life, I would never know a redeemer. I would never know a savior. It's a profound thought. I mean, you scratch your head and probably think if, probably it wouldn't be something I'd want on my tombstone necessarily, you know. But I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a deep thought. But I keep thinking, each one of us understands something. We have a nature to be tempted, and we have a nature to fall. God's nature is to rescue. When he was on that Sermon on the Mount, and he said, all of you have committed adultery. Men, especially with their visual stance, I'm telling you, you can be walking hand in hand with Billy Graham's sermons all day long, and look at one visual, and your mind's in the gutter. And it just takes you to places. And it's just, and you think, God, how will I ever get out of this? My nature is this way. But God's nature and his redemptive, restoring nature is to say this. I'm going to show you love. I'm going to show you forgiveness. I'm going to show you a power unlike anything you've ever seen. When I uh, officiated a funeral, um, I know the Cornettes were back. You were there. The Foxes were there. Um, Hesingers were there. Some of you guys were at the funeral up in, um, in in Houston or outside of Houston. And the parents, it was a 34-year-old former student, you know, died in a terrible accident. His brother before him died at 34 years old three years before. His other brother died as a child uh, in an illness. Three of the four sons had died. The father walks up to me at the food after the, um, the service. And he says, why, why have I done this to my sons? Says, well, what do you mean? He says, why have, I, why have my sons died? Why, why did I... This is God punishing me. I mean, Justin, Melissa, you were there. You know the, the birth father has a lot of money came from nothing and is now an oil baron, you know? But a good man. But you could tell in that one comment, decades of life summed up into one thought, what have I done? And I looked at him and not trying to give him a sound bite. Remember we always talk, be, be careful how you comfort people. Don't just give them a sound bite or offer a one-liner. And it, it was genuine when I, when I said, it's not your fault. You're not being judged I mean, I don't know what ramifications of sin and things had. But God doesn't operate that way. God does not judge someone and say, well, I'm going to bring death and destruction on all your family because of it. Do, do consequences go on? Absolutely. But the, God does not look at someone and say, I'm going to bring judgment. So this poor man in thinking in this state can have a wrong theology be talking out of his heart and he's free to talk this way. It's good for him to talk like this. It's good for him to get these things out. But you and I can be sitting here in wrong theology and be thinking, God is condemning me. God is, is wearing me out. But God doesn't operate that way. I remember being a 
five or six years old, my aunt and uncle used to build apartment complexes, and they would always have one where they lived, an apartment. And I remember being in the apartment, and my grandma lived there. That was my aunt's mom. Called her Bama, and she collected silver dollars. And so she had these silver dollars, and she had them in a closet. She goes in the bathroom. I had these kind of like nylon, goofy shorts on with these big pockets. I take some silver dollars and I put them in my pocket. And I go and I sit down at the table and eat my, you know, I, I didn't know how abnormal a, a, lettuce, a, a mayonnaise and tomato sandwich was, but growing up, that's what we ate, you know, as kids. But I'm eating this sandwich and I'm so, I'm, got me, I'm rich. I have all this money in my pockets. And my mama comes out and, and she gets me a napkin and gets something. She goes away. She comes back and she brings some more coins. And she puts them right in front. And she said, that'll balance you out a little bit more. And I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> beat me whip me, yell at me, do anything. I, this is, I'm thinking this as a five-year-old. Do not do this. Don't, you can't, you can't give me this. This is not, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not it. She says, you know, I've been collecting those for you. If I could have buried myself into an infinite hole of nothingness at that moment, I would have. I was just thinking, why don't you just why don't you grab a hold of me? Why don't you get... But that's love. Jesus says this, that for all those things you've failed, for all those things that you think hold you down, for all the things you think age will fix or marriage will heal... Don't forget me. I'm here. I'm here. He says to you that I've come this far to die on a cross, to take the pain, to prove to you no one is beyond my reach. Think about the most powerful person and influential person you know in this world. I mean, you don't have to know them personally. Think of the President of the United States. Think of, the, of um, a premier, a prime minister. You think of, it could be anyone. Even a religious capacity. Think of someone in a money arena that has more money than ever know what to do. I mean, so powerful. You look at these, these yachts, the planes, all the wealth, all the power. You know what? The most powerful man or woman on this, pl- on this planet still at the end of the day, collapses on a bed and sleeps like a baby. Falls asleep and wakes up with the same conditions that you and I live in in our tent. We serve a God who does not sleep nor slumber. And his only purpose in giving us the Holy Spirit was this. To let you know you're not alone. To call him a counselor. To call him a comforter. And to say this. At any time in your life when you feel you've fallen. Or you're about to fall. Don't leave me out. I'm there for you. Because not only is he there for you. He's there for the person that was once a human being. That had his head shaved. That was not given food. And was drawn in on a boxcar. And became an object. God says this. I am here to prevent anyone from ever becoming an object. Even in your eyes. Even keeping you from ever feeling like you're an object. He did not come to die for a rule of law. He came to die for you and I out of pure, unadulterated, reckless abandon of love. It made no sense in logic and reason. Sin makes no sense. Anytime I've ever dealt with someone bawling their eyes out over sin, I, I keep thinking in my, my mind, one thought, sin makes you stupid. It does. It makes us all stupid. We lose our mind. We lose our logic. We lose our reason. And it just falls down. And, and I'll look at the person and say, you lost your mind, didn't you? And they go, yeah, I did. I said, I know what exactly what you mean. 
Sin makes us absolutely ridiculous. But guess what? Love breaks all logic and reason. And love has come to you in the form of Jesus Christ. Come to you to save you. Come to you to restore you. Come to you to give you a life and to let you know that in any temptation, in any failure, in any place where you feel alone, where you're hurting, you're angry, you're lonely or tired, guess what? You're not alone. You're not alone. And you and I have that promise. It's our nature to be tempted. It's his nature to want to come alongside as he was in those sandals in, a, in whatever simple cloth he was in a sermon on, uh, with those men in one of his first messages to say, you can't help but fail. Every one of you. He says you're religious and not an adulterer. If you look at a woman, it's the way you are. But he finishes the thought to say, but you don't have to live under that religious weight anymore because I've come to be with you. And he is with us. And that power and that love that neither sleeps nor slumbers not only knows your name, just like in that message when he gave to those people in that sermon, he says, I know exactly who you are. And you're worth it. And I'm right here. What a powerful promise we have. What an amazing love that we have. You and I are not alone. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to break into your word and to understand that, Lord, you have given us the ability to, to see you even in temptation. That, God, we think of temptation and we think of the things that hold us back. We think of the things that take us down certain paths and they've hurt us and they've hurt others. And Lord, our minds that always think the grass is green or on the other side or there's, there'd be something better. And God, that temptation continually dwells. God, we have a choice. We can feed that temptation. We can let it own us. We can let it take over our heart. Not only our mind and logic and reason, it takes over our heart because we don't feel like we're worthy. We only feel secure enough to feel like we deserve to be loved on this earth. But God, you have given us the power and the ability to love beyond what we can do ourselves. We're not God. You are. We don't, know, we don't know how to fix our own temptation other than to stay in your word and stay, stay in the communication and praying with you. But Lord, thank you that even when we fail in that, Lord Jesus, you neither sleep nor slumber nor do you abandon. And you never walk away from us. You always find us. You always look for us. And you always know exactly who and where we are. And we keep thinking you'll get tired of it. We keep thinking you'll, you'll, you'll just get over the fact that we fail so much. But Lord Jesus, thank you for that your nature is not that way. It's hard to conceive that kind of love. But Father, as we walk on in life, that we recognize there are moments where we will feel tempted. We just pray that we feel your presence. Lord, thank you. And pray that you just convict us in our own hearts and grow us in our own hearts. Draw those who do not know you as a savior to simply ask the one that brought them, what does it mean? What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit in you? What does it mean to be saved? Or see one of us if, if you'd like. Lord, thank you for who you drew in our presence today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.